0: And Paul Allen is an example of someone who took up guitar at sixteen. He wasn't—he wasn't a a, mus- a lifelong musician because of piano lessons that were drilled into him. He—he he actively chose the guitar at sixteen because he loved Jimi Hendrix and was inspired by what Jimi Hendrix could do. Who was also a self-taught musician. So they're not all people who had this formal training. Some of them were people who chose music and did it their own way.
1: Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire. Many of you might know that I'm a former scientist, but I'm also a former and current musician. As a kid, I learned the piano and studied the clarinet, but my real talent lies in my voice. I have dulcet podcast tones, partially because I'm a classical singer, both in a volunteer choir and sometimes for a few extra bucks here and there when someone needs a soloist at church. And sometimes when I think about it, I'm just Boggled that we can make the music we do. I mean, when I'm playing the piano, I'm reading music and translating a language of dots on not one, but two lines. That language gets spoken by all 10 of my fingers, often with different fingers on the same hand moving at different times. Then, if I'm singing along, I'm also reading words sometimes in a language I do not speak, and translating those to my voice, which also needs to sing those words on different pitches and sometimes in a different rhythm than any of my fingers are doing. If you add in a pedal, I'm even including my feet, which are moving in yet another rhythm. It makes running or jumping look like child's play. How on earth do we do this and why? What does music mean to us and why does it mean so much? To answer these many musical questions, we've got Adriana Barton. She's a journalist and author, a former staff reporter at The Globe and Mail, a musician of many instruments, and the author of Wired for Music, A Search for Health and Joy Through the Science of Sound. Adriana, welcome. Hi, Bethany. Thanks for having me. And you are amazing. Your description
0: of your musical activities are exactly what my book is about, realizing what a wonderful thing we're able to do with music as players of music, makers of music, enjoyers of music, I guess, listeners of music.
1: And uh, you do have a lovely voice. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. No, I, it's actually something I think about. Sometimes I'll be playing the piano and all of a sudden I'll be like, whoa, my fingers are like reading the the notes on the page. And then I'm singing and then I lose my place and everything just like falls apart in a big gamish. Um, <laughs> So never get boggled by music while you're playing music. (laughs) Doesn't work out. You know, I've had that experience
0: too. And mostly when I'm trying to learn a new instrument, I'm even more amazed at what our bodies and brains can do with their interface. And at times I think about it like an octopus has many arms and we've learned that there's each arm has its individual brain. And sometimes I think of this digital knowledge that our bodies have, especially if we have experience with music previously, we're trying something new and they're finding their the notes, they're looking for the notes without consciously our conscious direction, you know? I'm not telling this finger, third finger, left hand, go there. It's like
1: it has its own mind. <laughs> yes, and I'm not even looking down. That's the wild thing. I'm not even looking yeah. at my fingers. I am looking at the music. Yeah it's just mind-boggling. But I wanted to get into this by asking, what is your favorite song or piece of music? And I know this is hard to pick. I personally cannot pick just one, but do you have like something that you rate in your your top tier for one reason or another?
0: As you say, it's hard to pick. And the answer would change moment to moment, day to day. I mean, it's very much like most of us. I pick music based on my mood. If I want to be uplifted uh, it depends on what kind of uplift if I want to be uplifted to dance it might be something Brazilian if I want to be soothed it might be a female vocalist and some some chordal guitar if I want to uh, be inspired it might be something altogether different. so I really don't it would be like choose one of your 20 children if I had 20 children or a hundred children or thousands of children. <laughs>
1: So I think part of the reason you might have trouble choosing is that you have a very fascinating musical history, including, I think, 17 years of experience on the cello. Is that correct? Yeah. And a couple years experience on the pottery flute. Uh Um, And I was wondering if you could kind of give a little bit of background on your musical experience, because this is a thread that really comes very strongly through the book.
0: The first page of my book is called Prelude, and I describe the first moments I touched a cello. I was five years old, and my mom had brought me to a conservatory in Quebec. We didn't have a lot of money, and she knew that the instruction was free if you got in. So even at five, I was expected to go through an admissions process, and and to I, I was seated uh, on an upside down waste paper basket because I was so small the chairs were too big for me because mostly they were high school students uh, you know at this conservatory there were some younger children as uh, besides me but I was small for my age and one of the younger ones and there was this panel of adults looking at me as I touched this instrument and it was a cello and <laughs> it was probably a uh, you know, a small size cello, uh, a half size cello, or even a quarter size cello made of plywood because they had these loner models and it was thrust into my hands. And and I made the screechy sounds that someone does when they first try an instrument. But I was really shocked by the feeling of vibrations all around me and all through my body. And in this first page of the book, I describe what that was like, and it, 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 it some people will think, well, how could you remember that you were five? I remembered. It was it was a visceral, wondrous feeling, and so in a way, I'm being a bit coy in the book because I talk about that as my first experience of music. But as you see in my history um, that I had to kind of really reflect on and dig down into all of the personal parts of my book are I, I sort of approached them as I did journalist in the rest of the book. I I looked through archival (laughs) uh, newspaper clippings and journal entries and uh, things. I interviewed my mother about things that had happened, interviewed people she knew from that time. And what I learned was that when I was a a year old, a mom came out to Vancouver. My father had died and she was uh, she had wanderlust. She was kind of a bohemian hippie type, and she had a baby, me, and my toddler sister. And she hitchhiked from Ottawa to Vancouver and uh, fell in with this kind of spontaneous music group crowd. And and they were, um, she had a series of of uh, lovers in the crowd, and one of them was a musician from Berkeley. And they had started; they had obtained a, a Canada Council grant to to produce spontaneous music workshops for children with special needs. And this was pretty innovative in 1970, 71, 72. And so they were going into centers for kids with Down syndrome and autism and things like that and, and inviting these children to make music. Make music from their heart. They would sort of start out something on a drum or a clarinet, and invite children to bang on metal car parts and play with rattles and gongs and all kinds of things. And if you if you search, you can find online uh, grainy black and white documentary films of of these happenings. Um, <laughs> and my mom said I I would have been taken to every single one that she was part of because this was her world at the time. That's what she was doing uh, with these these men in her life, these musician men. And there were some women involved in the group too. And so that actually would have been my first experience of music, being immersed in these very free-flowing, participatory, spontaneous, shimmering masses of sound where everyone was invited to be part of it.
1: I have to say, reading your book is kind of a, a combination of science book but also somewhat a um, combination of science book and I would say musical memoir. Um, But it also made me really want to, I would read your mom's memoir. I would read her memoir in five seconds. I bet it's fascinating.
0: (laughs) Yes. I only gave you glimpses, but she is a remarkable person and uh, many people told me she was the star of my book and I'm absolutely okay with that.
1: Um, But in addition to your musical experience, both kind of um, free flowing, but also instructional, you are also a journalist um, and specifically you are a science and health journalist. And I was wondering what made you want to write about music from a scientific and even kind of a medical side? To
0: be honest, I didn't intend to do the opposite. I didn't intend to look at it from a personal side. That uh, really came much later in the process at the urging of others. So uh, as you said, I was reporting on health at the Globe and Mail for many years, and it was a job I, I liked quite a bit. Um, I had access. What was What's fun about being a science and health journalist is you get to see breaking studies before everybody else you get embargoed information which is really interesting and there was more and more research being done around music and the brain and in in particular the healing potential of music in all kinds of conditions uh, Parkinson's and dementia and um, anxiety depression uh, even aphasia which is speech loss after stroke and I, I so I guess one of the editors knew that I he, he had a, a vague knowledge that I had some background in music. I, I didn't really talk about it much with people, but he did know that. and so he would assign me to to report on some of these findings, which I found uh, fascinating. And at the same time, uh, I, w- I had sort of gravitated back to music in in new ways as a, a young mother. Uh, no, I wasn't a young mother, my child was young. (laughs) Um, But uh, when my child was young, I I started doing music again in new ways. And that was really um, eye opening for me, because it was such a different experience from the one I had lived as a classical musician, that I was, I had almost a burning desire to Figure out why it was different. Analyze why. Why does this make me feel so different? Why are these musical traditions I was interested in in Cuban and and West African and Indian music? Why are these musics so organized so differently? Uh, everything about it felt completely different from the tradition in which I was trained. So I got this idea that I wanted to apply for a PhD in. Um, Ethnomusicology and specifically study medical ethnomusicology because I, I, w- I was aware that music as a tool for healing is a very old idea. So we have this new neuroscience finding clinical applications of music, but the idea that music was health, health, healthful for various conditions in is is very old and, and found in, in many. Uh, groups around the world, and they've practiced music as a healing intervention for centuries. And so I had this thought of doing a PhD looking at the parallels between this Western model of music therapy and some of the ancient uses of music. And I did, I applied for a PhD in that uh, area, and that was going to be my thesis topic. I was uh, offered a spot in in a program and uh, thought about it and my child was young; he was just starting kindergarten. I, I wasn't sure if I could handle the time commitment and the financial commitment. And also, to be honest, I'm just as a journalist used to having my what I produce be shared and read widely. <laughs> so, I, I, you know, a, a friend in in who had just done her PhD in anthropology at, at the same university said, "I would spend a week reading theses that came out of the program and, and ask yourself." if that would feel enough after 5 years or 6 years of your life is that what you'd like to produce and i thought that was a really interesting exercise and i did do that and i thought i'm not sure because i didn't want to miss out on my kids childhood and um you know the, the Arts-oriented uh, PhDs are not that well-funded, and and so that would have been difficult to. Anyway, that's probably more detail than you want. I put it aside the whole idea and carried on with my job, and um, then uh, lo and behold, I was approached by a publisher who asked if I had any book ideas, and I, I uh, after a, a long conversation, he said, "Well, do you have anything else?" and and then I blurted out this this uh, PhD thesis idea and. Eventually, it became a book uh, after lots of, um, I don't want to say pressure, I'll say encouragement, uh, not only from the publisher, but also from friends and family to include my personal story. And to be honest, of course, my personal story was relevant to my burning desire to, (laughs) to analyze and research this area. But it was sort of I was in denial about that. I thought, well, that was you know the whole music thing, cello, whatever happened to another person. I'm this researcher. Uh, but in fact, my, my unfinished business with music, of course, informed my interest. And this is the gift of writing this book is that I feel that I've been able to come full, full circle and inter- reintegrate all of those earlier experiences with my adult self as a researcher and a, a thinker and a writer.
1: So one of the things that really amazed me as I read your book. I actually learned a lot of amazing things from this book, but one of the things that really amazed me is just how musical we are. And it's, I mean, as a species and you don't really think about it, but we're just, all of us We're really musical. And um, Steven Pinker in one of his many writing crimes um, described music as auditory cheesecake. Something that is basically an accident of our evolution with no real purpose. Scientists violently disagree with this. (laughs) Um, And one of the things you did in your book was you delved into why music might exist. What are some of the theories behind or ideas behind why music exists?
0: Well I am glad that you ask about theories because of course it, they are just theories we we can't uh you know ancient neural net networks or prehistoric neural networks don't leave any any uh traces that we can study so it's it's going to be conjecture but certainly a great deal of attention has been put towards this, partly because of Pinker, and we can thank him for, for um, the provocative uh, phrase that he used that so incensed musicologists and, and others. I mean, some people would agree with him too. The the problem that is that evolutionists have looked at music as it is today and wondered how on earth could that have been helpful to us in our survival, because generally when some things considered there, you know, they look at traits or adaptations or that sort of thing. And so the question of does it support survival is is a, a primary question. And that was difficult to see how, you know, bopping along to <laughs> to pick any pop star would be useful to our survival. Um, I mean, you could say breast milk, we can live without that too, but can we really? It's a very important part of of, uh, of being mammals. So, I mean, it, survival depends what you mean. As modern humans, there are a lot of things we can survive without, but are we thriving? Is that how we're meant to be? Not necessarily. So that that's the preamble. This brilliant uh, Yale musicologist named Gary Tomlinson said, wait we're going at this entirely the wrong way we're looking at music as it is now and saying how did that help us survive in fact we should look at where did the capacities for music come from the, the all of the building blocks because that's that will give us clues as to why music is important and where it com- came from and so where it comes from and so he he looked at well where would rhythmic attunement have come from and where would pitch perception have come from and it, it paints a very different picture of, of music and its use in our species. And again, you know, we they can only work with the clues that we have, but but one thing we know is that although musical capacities sometimes are shared with certain animals, um, in general it looks like our innate musical abilities are much. Deeper and more sophisticated than, than we've seen in most animals. And people can argue with me with cat videos or dog videos or whatever. But, but this is what, for example, a, a newborn baby's brain, even if it's napping, will show a response to the regular beat in, in music. And a macaque's brain will not do that. A macaque is a type of monkey. And, and you know, they put electrodes on a, a newborn's baby baby's brain or electrodes on a macaque's brain. And the macaque's brain is not showing those responses in the same way. So, although both are mammals and both, uh, you know, were are in the womb hearing a mother's heartbeat, the heart, mother's heartbeat isn't enough to give us that that perception of regular rhythm. It must have come from something humans did, that other primates did not. So starting from that assumption, what are some of the things that humans did in our evolution that, that, um, that other monkeys did not? I'll say monkeys loosely. Um, one thing is that we walked upright. And so the earliest footprints that were found in present day Tanzania are in volcanic ash. And in that ash, you can see that one of the three walkers, prehistoric walkers, was walking in the footsteps of of another and that's something that um other uh, other primates don't Don't or can't do. They are not able to adjust their gait and stride to the beat, let's say a beat of another. Imagine what you were talking about, what's required to play the piano. Well, even that is a huge leap, to use a a pun or metaphor, because you're having to adjust a tune to the rhythm and the gait of, of another creature. And that's something we learn to do fairly early. So that's one possibility that that being bipedal creatures has something to do with it. And bipedal creatures who could walk in tandem like that, I guess, groups of animals do run in tandem, but to match exactly the footprint of another is something else. Um, Another clue uh, has been found uh, or suggested in the the stone tools that we began making about 1.3 million years ago. So we we developed, I guess the the scientific word would be mimesis, um, you know, being able to mirror others. some one one of our ancestors is is chipping rock against rock to make a tool, and others start to imitate this. And this ability is passed on. And different things are happening because when you're the the motor action required to chip at the tool is also, creating a firing in the brain of all the neural networks involved, but you're also hearing the sound at the same time of being, being, being. you know, and and then groups are doing this in a coordinated way. So uh, they're coordinated because they're learning from each other how to do this. So there's some thought too, that tool making might have been some of the early, I, I joked about it being the original quote, rock music, which is a terrible pun, but I couldn't couldn't resist. Um, and, and pitch perception too. Uh, they they show at one point in our evolution that our ears changed to allow us to hear more closely. And another thing is that other primates and other animals appear to hear, or it's thought that they would hear all the frequencies in any given sound. Whereas when we hear uh, language or music, we hear the fundamental, which is the, the, the bottom of the frequency range, as a distinct sound. And that's, not, that's something that involves mental perception. It's not actually what is found in nature, because if you measure that on the tools that we have, you'll see all the frequencies involved in a sound, um, in the sine waves and whatnot. But we, we hear a distinct pitch, which is, again, a, an aspect of music perception that happens in the mind that we are wired to do. That's yeah. a, there's a lot more to it, but that's a bit of a sketch.
1: Yeah. It's it's like we we have uh, less range, but more focus yes, in terms and, of what we
0: hear. So what I'm trying to say with rhythm and, and pitch perception, they're both essential for experiencing music and experiencing language, but they involve mental capacities that were developed over millennia, essentially.
1: And what I found really interesting is, um, you know, I never really thought about how many of us enjoy music, but so many of us do. In fact, if people do not enjoy music, it's actually considered a neurological condition. It is. And it kind it's of makes so me wonder rare. actually if Steven Pinker had this rare condition, if he referred to music as auditory cheesecake.
0: Yeah, I believe um, he's known to be a music uh, appreciator, music lover. So I, I wouldn't go that far. And, you know, he's a brilliant man. He's, he's, been right in many areas about many things, and I think he's even qualified his statements about music since that book was written. Uh, that reference was was published.
1: That's too late. Um, I'm holding auditory cheesecake against him forever, <laughs> just fair just because. But I actually wanted to ask, um, you know, if people do not enjoy music, it's considered a neurological condition. But other species do actually enjoy music. Interestingly, um, you know, so there's like Snowball can bop. Snowball's a cockatoo and he can yeah. Um, yeah. But I was also, um, <laughs> this is really nerdy. So when I was a scientist, I spent a few months working with monkeys, um, rhesus macaques, actually. And you'd have to, someone would draw the short, short straw, I'd have to go in on the weekend to, you know, feed and water and, and you know, take care of everyone, give them their social time, all that kind of thing. Um, and so one time I was in there and I was bored. <laughs> because <laughs> you can't really do anything while you're in there you can just you can only give them their social time and you can feed and clean and all this kind of thing. And so I started singing. Um and the room went silent. Complete and total silence. And they're all looking at me. And I'm like, "Oh no." And I just kept singing and they kept looking. <laughs> and then I stopped and they I can't even explain they applauded. Like, they didn't clap. Rhesus monkeys don't clap. But, like, it was, like, there was cheering. (laughs) And they were, like, reaching out and touching me. And, like, they clearly thought this was amazing. Um, For anyone who is curious, uh, Rhesus macaques enjoy Schubert's Mass in G. Um,
0: I was curious. I was going to ask you what song.
1: (laughs) Mass in G. Um, So, uh, but it was just fascinating. And um, we know that humans, when humans appreciate music, Um, there is actually something very specific that happens in the brain when we hear music. What is it that happens?
0: I would say many specific things. So it depends on what uh, areas you're talking about. But for example, uh, we know this from MRI studies, um, that when someone goes in an MRI machine, and they're listening to music, and their brain is being scanned, even if their body is perfectly still or as still as they can make it, the putamen, which no, actually they pronounce it putamen. I had to look this up when I did the
1: audio book. It's it's putamen. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I know we get that a lot.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I had to look it up when I wrote the audio or when I narrated the audio book. It's kind
1: of good because putamen sounds a little less dirty than putamen.
0: It's just a stupid word. They should have changed it. But okay. Anyway, putamen. we'll call this
1: brain area Steve.
0: Yeah, yeah. I like Steve. Okay, Steve is good. Okay. So when music is playing, Steve is bopping in your brain. The putamen is is activated. It's it's part of the motor center of our brain, and yet it 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 is experiencing music as as a stimulant for the motor area just by listening partly because we were wired to move to music. It's it's a very recent phenomenon for people to sit perfectly still in a concert hall. It's not a natural thing for our species to do. So that's one thing that happens, the motor area. Um, another area is is... Memory, various memory centers are activated. Um, your body, your brain is trying to figure out: Do I know this song? Uh, how is this song uh, similar or different from other songs that I know? Uh, so there are various memory centers activated when we listen to music or when we perflate, perform music. Um, then emotion centers, and um, certainly. This has been demonstrated very, very clearly uh, that dopamine is released um, and triggered in when we listen to music in different ways. It gets technical at what points in a song and whatnot, but certainly dopamine, which is an uh, essential element or chemical neurotransmitter in the pleasure and reward center in the brain. And the pleasure and reward center uh, is extremely important in relation to music because many of the health effects. Are downstream effects of how music stimulates the pleasure and reward circuitry. So, pain relief is believed to start with that, and uh, sleep effects of of um, of music listening seems to come from that and the antidepressant effects and the anti-anxiety effects. And I feel a little cautious mentioning effects like that without giving their full explanation because uh, you think, oh, well, that seems a little bit... uh Overblown to suggest that music can relieve anxiety. And yet, that has been proven very, very, uh, with very stringent research in um, surgical wards. They've looked at people who are facing surgery and they've studied music head to head with Valium like drugs in multiple studies and shown that it was equally beneficial for acute anxiety in that setting. And again, I say, Specifically, that type of anxiety, not necessarily PTSD or other types of anxiety, specifically in those settings. Anyway, um, uh, it gets very involved, and so I'm trying to keep my my answers not too long.
1: But and of course, we, when we say like relieve anxiety, we don't mean everyone's anxiety all exactly. the time. <laughs> you yeah, know, a single song is not going to snap you out of a panic attack.
0: <laughs> but you know. certainly, in that in that uh, setting, uh, it was as effective as. As Valium in not one study, but actually dozens of studies, and then reviewed and validated by the renowned Cochrane group of evidence based medicine, their medicine researchers, evidence based medicine researchers. Um, so the Cochrane did three or four mega, mega reviews of this one thing and found they gave th- music thumbs up for that purpose. So when I say relieves anxiety, that's what I mean. But I also mean that it's been rigorously studied because I've been very careful in my book, not to support pseudoscience in any way or at to the best of my ability and indicate where there are gaps in what we know, what we do know, what we don't know, what is blatantly false. You know, I've tried to, to, to guide a reader through the evidence as much as I can without having it be boring either. And there are uh, pages and pages of source notes in the end. If anyone wants to look up any of the information I've cited, it's very easy to find with those notes. I've, I've keyed the, the passages in the book so that if you want more information, you can look it up for yourself. Um, so yeah, so we have the, <laughs> getting back to your question, we have motor activity, at motor centers uh, activated. We have Uh, memory centers activated. We have pleasure and reward center um, circuitry, I should say, not center because there's no specific center. It's sort of interconnected regions, I should say, uh, activated. We have um, other neurochemicals such as oxytocin, which is a chemical associated with social bonding, which is also released when we listen to music, quite a few others. Uh, So I can't say there's one thing that happens because music is known to stimulate almost every brain area ever studied.
1: Um, So that was actually one of the things I appreciated um, about this book is that you devote a good chunk of the book to talking about and debunking the many wild claims that people like to make (laughs) about music, like whether or not music can make you smarter, (laughs) or uh, that's usually the big one is can baby Mozart uh, make you smarter? Uh, Why Mozart? Anyway, um, it's always, it's always, uh, can Mozart make you smarter? Or can um, singing bowls cure cancer? Things like that. The answer is no. Um, And I was wondering why, why do you think people want to believe so badly in all the things that music can do. As you mentioned, you know, people use music for for healing purposes um, in many cultures. Why do people want to believe this, even though there are some findings that are positive, but they're also limited?
0: It's really interesting. Music is, it, we are enthralled by it chemically. <laughs> and so to me, it makes sense that people want to ascribe Benefits to it that it may not offer because music, although we all experience it, and it, you know, it, there isn't a society ever studied that hasn't had music. So, pretty much every human society, and by human, I mean starting with Homo sapiens, has always had music of some form. It's ubiquitous and yet it's mysterious, even though it's around us, and we've we we start literally start listening to it. Uh, in the womb, if it's around us, which it inevitably is in our societies, it's mysterious, enthralling, and ubiquitous at the same time. It, a lot of us don't fully understand why we love it. We don't fully understand why we're drawn to it, and why we hate certain types of music. That it, 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 I think so anything that is mysterious, we're more likely to either dis disbelieve that it has any benefit or ascribe too many. And what is interesting to me is that the claims about music that are bunk are no more unlikely than the things about music that are true. <laughs> so, I mean, what I often try and say is that the things that are verified about music are amazing enough that you don't need to make stuff up because the things that are are valid are already remarkable. Uh, I don't know if that answers your question,
1: no, I think I think that does help. And I so I did want to actually go back and talk about why people thought Mozart could make you smart. I was wondering if you could talk about that study and what it actually showed because it did not show that Mozart could make you smart,
0: so the Mozart effect, I think that probably there there's a lot of elitism in classical music. Uh, and so I think the idea that music make made you smarter, particularly Mozart or particularly Western classical music, probably predates the the um, the headline grabbing nineteen ninety three study that sort of ushered in the Mozart effect era. So I think it's a child
1: prodigy so he's extra smart and therefore he yes, must exactly extra smart
0: yeah that that mozart effect idea probably as you say probably started with his remarkable history and uh i mean he was a savant he was he was a, a genius uh there's no question um so i think that that idea was probably around for a couple of centuries before we got that 1993 study in california that showed uh that after i i don't have every fact on the tip of my tongue, but I think it was about ten minutes of listening to uh, a piano, a, a do, uh, two pianos uh, playing a sonata. Sonata Kerschel. I don't remember which Kerschel. Okay.
1: Oh, but it wasn't <laughs> but, even Mozart. It wasn't oh, even no, Mozart.
0: no. Kerschel is 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 the 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 oh. cataloging system for Mozart sonatas. Oh, sorry. Uh, Mozart's okay. work. So Didn't any Mozart right. work has a Kerschel number because <laughs> uh, that's a cataloging uh, a cataloging. Uh, Factor. Um, anyway, it's a cataloging device, shall I say? So I, I'm just assuming that's well known, but I guess not. I uh, have no idea. <laughs> okay. Uh, so when you see a K dot and then the number, that's a Kerschel number uh, that's used as a cataloging number for all of his work. Anyway, so it was Kerschel number something something for two pianos, sonata. And it was known to be uh, you know, one of his more advanced pieces or compositions and its complexity. So the researcher uh, had, I think it was, my memory serves, about 36 college students came in and some listened to this crucial number, something, something, Mozart sonata. Some listened to a meditation tape and I think others sat in silence for about 10 minutes, if I remember correctly. And after that, the ones who listened to the Mozart had a very tiny bump in in their scores they they did uh, a couple of exercises it wasn't even a full IQ test they did a couple of exercises taken from an IQ test and they involved uh, you know uh picturing geometric shapes and things like that and uh, the ones who listened to the mozart seemed to do slightly better I and mean, it was so ever so slightly better than the other two groups and uh, the, the effects lasted for minutes literally minutes the the researcher described this as a pilot study and was fairly relatively circumspect about her results but it was published in the journal nature not even a full study like i think it was a couple of pages maybe a letter maybe it was a letter to the journal nature it wasn't a peer reviewed lengthy fully developed study it was a pilot uh, pilot results And the media just went wild, and and there even the researcher herself, the year it was published, said it's gone out of control. (laughs) You know, I didn't intend for it to spawn books and CDs and and all of this. And it took uh, decades to fully debunk because people love the story. They love the idea that listening to Mozart could make you smarter. I mean, we would see that with conspiracy theories a lot too. When you love the, when it's a simple idea, that you love that you already bought into as a culture, we've already bought into the idea that Mozart was a genius. Therefore, maybe that'll rub off on the rest of us. You know, it's such a romantic, beautiful idea. And when it, when it applies to something we already love, and that's already relatively mysterious to us, meaning music, for all the reasons I mentioned, um, it really did take hold on the, 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 the cultural imagination, I guess, in, in, Europe and and yeah, the Canada the Uni- United States because it seemed like such an easy way to and again I, I think there's elitism and some snob appeal uh related to it too. so um that I that is thoroughly debunked that that listening to music at Mozart makes us smarter um I will say, Here's some. I was saying before that the cool, amazing things about music are just as incredible as that the things that are validated are just as incredible as the bunk. This, this I only discovered while I was doing the research for the book. Uh, I didn't discover it, but I, I, it was new to me. That when they have babies listen to music in the womb four weeks and then not play that music for a period of time. I think it, it four weeks or so. Four weeks after birth. They respond in ways to familiar music that they don't unfamiliar music. They remember the music that you played to them in the the womb, which is not the
1: same as making you smarter. They remember, but but it's not. But isn't
0: that incredible that they? Oh yeah. So you could play, uh, you know, you could play hip hop to the baby, or the jazz, or classical, whatever, and you're already starting to create their musical library. And whether they choose to love that music or not may depend on all kinds of factors in their lives, but it will be part of their musical vocabulary, the music that they feel is familiar. And that is so... This social, um this social aspect of music really does become it, become it starts before birth. It starts in the songs that are sung to the unborn baby, the songs that are played around the pregnant person. It's 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 just amazing. That's amazing. <laughs> so we don't need uh to to focus on making babies smarter by playing music to them in the womb in this dreary, um, you know, mechan- mechanistic way, we can think about how we're, we're ushering the baby into our musical world before they're born.
1: Also, if you're going to talk about like music that makes you smarter, they really should have compared it to Schoenberg who like wrote his music like anyone else would write math. And that way you could compare like, maybe it was Mozart the Prodigy or maybe it was Schoenberg and you have the bonus effect of also making people miserable because they have to listen to Schoenberg. Um,
0: I had to do (laughs) atonal sight singing in my university studies. Can you imagine that?
1: I I have done atonal sight singing in auditions and I am still traumatized.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I hear you. I feel you and I hear you.
1: (laughs) I didn't get that job. Um, So uh, one of the things that you note in the book is that you know it's not just Mozart. A lot of brilliant scientists and a lot of scientists in general are also musicians. Um, the iconic example, of course, is Einstein. He played the violin. He did it very well. Um, but I've also I also noticed that a lot of scientists, more than musicians, they're also athletes. Right? You get a lot of scientists who work out a lot, who are sporty. Um, sometimes they're both, um, and you mentioned in the book that it could be, you know, properties of music are kind of translate to kind of these like scientific, the life of the scientific mind. But I was also wondering, like, could it also be that a lot of scientists come from more privileged backgrounds, basically, where as you're being brought up, you're encouraged to try an instrument or a sport or both? <laughs> you know, I mean, it, is that something that we know is associated with being a scientist or is it is it something that we can't really tease out?
0: I don't think we can tease it out, but I do think there are a number of, of factors at play here. And one is that you said uh, you talked about privilege and, and uh, exposure to pursuits such as music. Yes. However, uh, the Nobel Prize winners are disproportionately... Uh, likely to continue doing musical activities well into their careers as a sideline to their scientific work. So it's one thing to be offered or forced to do piano lessons as a child. It's another for you to dis- to own that in your life and keep it going. And we see that that Nobel prize winners, not just music, I will say also the arts in general, they're they're much more likely and there's a study that I reference in the book that shows that they tracked the leisure activities of Nobel Prize winners from the year the Nobel Prizes began, which is 190 something. <laughs> Maybe it was 04 or 1910. It was, it was at the beginning of the turn of the last century. Um, uh, that's redundant. It was the turn of the, the last century. Um, and, and saw and tracked them until the more recent prize winners and found that. They were disproportionately compared to regular scientists involved in the arts and music in particular. So um so yes, you know, uh your childhood context might give you more access to the arts and these things but the fact that they continue actively pursuing the arts and music says something. Uh one of the conjectures in the book or in my book that that comes up is that music is very good at keeping our minds flexible. It's an act- In which we can, uh, they call it a flexibility primer, uh, where it it affects our brains in such a way that we would change the channel in our thinking or get out of a mental rut. It's useful in that way. And and certainly, um, great thinkers such as Paul Allen of Microsoft described it that way. He said, you know, all day coding, then I go play my guitar. Uh, or that other Einstein you mentioned. He, the people around him. He never said this publicly himself, but his wife and his kids said he would be working on a math problem and he'd get frustrated and he'd go to the study and plink on the piano or or play his violin a little bit and then go back to the math problem and he he'd make progress that way. It's changing changing the channel and cross pollinating your your pursuits and your way of thinking. Um, And I think because music is is analytical, but also abstract, maybe it helps with some of that abstract thinking that is needed to not just stay in the same mindset all the time in, in your day job, I guess. And Paul Allen is an example of someone who took up guitar at 16 he wasn't he wasn't a a, mus- a lifelong musician because of piano lessons that were drilled into him he he actively chose the guitar at 16 because he loved Jimi hendrix and was inspired by what jimmy hendrix could do who is also a self-taught musician so they're not all people who had this formal training some of them were people who chose music and did it their own way
1: um and this is kind of related um I know, I'm sure you know, a lot of people who rely on music to help them focus. Um, You know, they have like, you can find all these like music playlists that will like are studying focus effect playlists. For some reason, they are always dubstep, um, (laughs) unless they are not. So they're they're either calm piano music or dubstep. I don't don't know why there's nothing in between. Um, But I was wondering, does music help us focus?
0: I think in answer to that question, first, I'd ask, uh, what do we want to focus on, uh, because different kinds of work require different cognitive resources. So if we're chopping onions, uh, and getting ourselves through a boring job or, uh, you know, long haul trucking or things like that, music might help keep us going, you know, keep us from dying of boredom or keep, keep a certain, um, uh, level of alertness happening, especially if it's fast paced. However, uh, Daniel Levitin, who is a a brilliant uh, musician slash neuroscientist, he wrote the seminal book, This Is Your Brain on Music. Uh, He has also done books on uh, multitasking and the evils of multitasking and how multitasking is really quite inefficient because we're sapping, every time we shift activities, we're sapping we're using up cognitive uh, resources in an inefficient way. And so definitely music listening to music does use up cognitive resources. If we need all of our attention to write a very important piece of, uh, maybe it's a reporter that's very technical, or if we really need all of uh, certain authors who used to um Write to music. For instance, Stephen King says he can't do that anymore. He used to listen to heavy metal, Anthrax, and things like that, and he says I can't do that now Um, because that's multitasking. When we're listening to music, doing other things, we're multitasking. So it's individual, I I guess, with creative pursuits. I know my mom, who you you've met in the book, (laughs) she was she's I consider to be a brilliant artist. She would always have music playing in the studio, but the type of work she was doing was different from what someone. Uh, writing code might be doing uh, and what stage of the code writing. And it also depends on age. They've shown that music is much more um, deleterious to the task at hand for people over age 50 than it is for 20-year-olds. So, a 20-year-old's ability to handle that extra cognitive load will be different. Um, But certainly, um, Daniel Levitin would say that it would not improve focus. And for most of those focused activities, based on what I've seen him write.
1: So the less you can listen to music while you're doing focused activity, the closer your inevitable decline into dust.
0: (laughs) I wouldn't put it that way. But I would say, be aware when you're listening to music, doing other things that you're, you're, recruiting brain resources to listen to music that you might need for what you're doing. It depends on what you're doing. You know, if you, if what you're doing is, is not heavily taxing for you, then maybe it's fine. And certainly a lot of people swear by writing to music, um, painting to music, doing lots of things to music. So I would say certainly cleaning a house way better with music. So it depends on what you're doing and how focused you need to meet. I personally cannot write to music because I get so drawn in by the harmonies and the rhythm that I'm swept away. I can't focus on what I'm doing, but I don't judge people who can. I wish I could.
1: Um, But I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about aging because music, as you pointed out in your book, is very powerfully linked to memory. Um, And some studies have actually shown that playing music might help preserve cognitive function. Um, as we age, and so I was wondering, what kind of studies have looked at the effects of aging um, and music? And you know, is it listening to music? Is it playing music? What are what are the effects? Um, obviously, none of them are curals because that's not how this works. But there there are important effects on memory.
0: It's really early days research. That was that's what I'll say from the get go, and it's what I try and emphasize in the book as well. Certainly, um, a lot more research needs to be done. Because uh, in one of the chapters, I talk about how it was finally debunked that music training at a young age won't make you smarter, better at school, it, it will do some things for your brain that will show up in a brain scan, it really does rewire your brain early. But uh, eating breakfast rewires
1: training. your brain, like, <laughs> well, it rewires your brain. Well,
0: it's a little different. Like, it actually thickens the corpus callosum, which is the, the part of the brain that separates the two hemispheres of the brain, the two halves, in a way that you will have for life. If you were trained at a certain age with a certain rigor, you will have a thicker corpus, corpus callosum for life. I don't think eating breakfast would have that same effect. So it does do it does result in, in lasting changes in the brain if you study music at a, a young age uh, in a rigorous way. Um, young age, meaning before the ages of seven to nine, seems to be the window. But those changes don't necessarily translate into increased intelligence or or academic performance. So that took a long time to sort out. And the same rigor needs to be applied to some of the aging uh, research. That being said, as a caveat, it does. So, uh, for example, training music training later in life for the first time, there was a study done in Florida with retirees, and the group that was on waitlist for piano lessons, it's an, neither group had ever studied an instrument or studied piano, Um, the group on the waitlist for the lessons didn't perform as well six months later, I think it was six months, as the group who had a weekly piano lesson and three practice sessions at home. And they were people who were learning piano for the first time. So they're practicing about three hours a week and having a, uh, uh, an hour long lesson and compared to baseline. So both groups had testing at the beginning. They showed bumps in short term memory and executive functioning. Now, was that from music or just from doing something new, period?
1: I was you just about after. to ask that.
0: <laughs> yeah. If they'd been learning a new language, would they show the same bump? You have to tease those things out and it takes a long time to do that. Um uh, that being said, there are there are reasons why music might music training might do that. Uh, certainly, auditory um, processing seems to be preserved. and people who uh, who did music earlier in life, they don't seem to have the same degree of auditory processing issues later on as people who didn't have the intensive music training. So it does train your audio t- auditory system and that's useful because not all deafness later on, or I should say deafness is too strong a word, not all hearing problems later in life are simply to do with volume. They're, they're having to do with making sense of the salient auditory information. So that seems to be a benefit of training, um, and that's a pretty pretty solid research. Uh, other research that, that they've shown, this I found really interesting, study looking at brain shrinkage, which is a marker of aging. And they compared non-musicians, amateur musicians, and professional musicians. And in fact, they found that of the three groups, the amateur musicians had the plumpest looking brains. So they had the benefit of the music training, but they weren't so specialized that they only did that. They were doing lots of other things in their lives, most likely as well. They weren't just in the practice room all the time. So Again with all of these questions it's you have to look at all the the variables and there's not a simple answer yes it'll make you smarter yes it'll it'll you know keep keep your brain extra speedy and strong and all of that um it, it depends how you do music uh, you know if if you do music in a way that's incredibly stressful which is what I did when i was younger you're not going to get the same benefits uh, then in dementia area, that's a whole other area. So there is some very new research showing that listening to familiar music uh, regularly seems to improve some short-term me- memory in people. But uh, pilot research, you know, it, it, what's amazing about it, though, is it's very hard to offer people with dementia anything to improve cognitive decline. And it's possible, there's a there's a hypothesis that that boost in short-term memory might simply be from the stress-reducing effects of listening to familiar music, because when we're stressed, which is, and stress and anxiety are very prominent in dementia, that causes cognitive drain. Which So, if you can ease stress, perhaps you're allowing it looks like a bump in in the the test results because there's less stress so you don't know if it's if music is actually perking up memory or if it's reducing stress in a way that frees up more of the cognitive resources to allow the person to to improve their short-term memory temporarily and we'll say temporarily music will not Uh, halt the progression of Alzheimer's and other dementias. So (laughs) it's, it's what I try and do in the book is qualify all those statements, because there are a lot of questions that still remain. Nevertheless, it's well known that music can help other conditions in aging, such as loneliness. There are parts of music that are almost factory built to to help us feel more connected to other people. And loneliness is, a, is actually a major health risk. It doubles the risk of dementia, being uh, chronic loneliness. So if you can help ease loneliness through musical activities, other activities also uh, ease loneliness, but music seems to do it quicker and better perhaps based on some of the research that's been done. So, and then uh, certainly feeling people get social support and Parkinson's is another area where music and dancing in particular is really helpful. I could go on, but I don't know how much time you want to spend on that question.
1: Um, It's really interesting that you talked a little bit about loneliness, um, because one of the really fascinating things you pointed out in this book is how our experience of music has changed over time. And this is not just in terms of instruments or technology, but whether we listen to music alone, and you talk about the birth of the Walkman, and for those who are too young to remember the Walkman, it was a little tape deck that had some headphones attached to it. And it was the first experience of walking around with your own music in your ears. And at this point, I can't imagine listening to music without headphones. And people actively complain about bikers or hikers who have speakers on their bikes or on their backpacks, because how dare they disturb the holy silence of the woods. But there was a time when no one ever listened to music alone. And I was wondering, how do you think, and this is just speculation because it's it's not in the book. I'm just curious. how do you think that headphones have changed our experience of music? I
0: flick at this in the book and one thing, okay, there are a couple of things to remember. earlier in this conversation, we talked about the deep evolutionary roots of musical capacities, so the capacities to make music and the cap- capacities to enjoy it. They are millennia years old. How long have we even had recorded music of any kind? I mean, recorded music began at the end of the 19th century. So we're talking 150 years tops that we've even had recorded music. And if you think about that, before 150 years ago, so for 99.99999% of our human evolution, you either there had to be making music yourself or in close proximity to someone else making music to hear it or experience it at all. So music was only live. <laughs> For the vast majority of our evolution, it was only live. Then we had recorded music. And again, the, the period between the first recorded music and the Walkman, the Walkman was in the early 80s when it came on the scene, it was less than a century, we had recorded music without the headphone part of it. Headphones were developed, I think, in the 1950s. I'd have to double check my notes, but that's uh, pretty recent. Um, And when headphones first came out, it was really just extreme audio geeks who would use it in the recording studio. You didn't have people walking around wearing them. That was a Walkman thing. And there was this great quote that I'll say that it, it was Matt Alt's uh, um, piece in the New Yorker. He did a piece on the Walkman that inspired me to, to do a little passage on that. And, and the piece was, it came out during the beginning of, at the beginning of the pandemic. And he was joking that the Walkman prepared us for social distancing. So <laughs> he was saying the Walkman was the original social distancing of music because be, music is so entangled uh, in our in our social bonding and in our cultural experiences at funerals and political rallies and marches and and deaths and marriages and you know everything in in villages in Africa everything people are doing um uh being in the fields cooking everything is is sung to or played to it's it's in the fabric of everyday life in a way that we've sort of lost in western european Cultures and societies. You see it in pockets, but it's so we've sort of brought it back, but in this isolated way with the headphones on and the devices. Uh we've brought it back in an individual way rather than in a socially connected way. It's not all bad. I mean, we can do things to music that we music was never studied as a as a running aid before the Walkman. I mean, nobody was recuperating in the hospital, receiving the benefits of the music, unless they had a, you know, the early days of music therapy when they were experimenting with having someone sit at the bedside and playing to someone, you know? Uh, Otherwise they weren't bringing in... um, cassette players and that kind of thing into hospitals because it would disturb other patients. So headphones and earbuds allow people to use music in ways they never did before, but individually. And so that's one aspect, the whole um, sitting on a subway, watching people with wires dangling from their ears in their own auditory worlds was not something that happened before the 80s. The other part, though, is even how you hear music is, is completely different when it's being played between your ears, instead of filling up a room. So I, you know, it's it's interesting to do an experiment with a, a player, if you have speakers and listen to your living room, with music filling it, and then listen to the same piece right after with your headphones or your earbuds, you'll hear a different and the different acoustics, and you might experience it in your body differently, too. Because when it's filling the room, it's actually moving molecules of air that touch your skin, physically touch your skin. And when it's through earbuds or headphones, you're having the sound go through your cranium. It's it's, it's really different.
1: Um, and one of the things I really appreciate about this book is that not only do you tackle being musical, you tackle being unmusical, not just musia, but the emotions that are associated with being unmusical, the intense shame that gets attached to whether or not someone is a good singer or can read music. Um, And you note that things like tone deafness or people who think they have no rhythm, that's actually mostly cultural. True tone deafness is very, very rare. Um, And you offer some good examples of kind of the social shaming that takes place very early in life. Um, You know, when kids are told to sing more quietly in class. Um, and I was wondering or not at all. <laughs> or not at all. And yeah. I was wondering why do you think some cultures, um, and in particular, I guess Western cultures, tend to be so draconian with regard to musical talent, to the point that people who actually do not sing themselves will rage out at the single mistake someone makes on American Idol. <laughs> While other groups, like groups that you studied um in places like Brazil, are much more chill and egalitarian, and everyone just makes music all the time. Why Why are some so much more formalized and judgmental about our music?
0: I'll start out by saying that I didn't cover people being unmusical, but I covered people feeling unmusical. So having a self-concept of being unmusical is very common in our in our mainstream Canadian American society and it, it's sad because as you pointed out in in your question true uh it, the correct term is amusia but true tone deafness or amusia is something like 2% of the population but the people who will say that they're unmusical would be something like 17 to 20, 22 percent. So we've got almost a fifth of people saying, I don't have a musical bone in my body. And um, some of those people have, have have suffered what I might call musical abuse. They've they've been singled out by teachers at age five as 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 having terrible voices when their poor little vocal cords had barely even formed. <laughs> you know, like I think musical abilities develop at different rates for different kids, just like reading abilities and also. Um, The family environment has a lot to do with music and whether children feel a permission to participate in music. And so that idea of being unmusical can be passed down. So that's happening at an individual level through their early experiences and early messages through families at a cultural level. um, So we live in a, you know, a dominantly Christian society still, even today, although, Many people don't identify as Christian anymore. Um, there is a lot of influence of of that that faith in in mainstream Canada, mainstream America, and, and Western Europe. And something happened uh, two thousand years ago in relation to music making in in that geographical area. And that was that um, it gets very long, and so I'm trying to be. It's hard to talk about, about complex things in in Cole's notes, but before Christianity, um, the Roman and and Greek empires from the the, the records we have from scrolls and things like that had views of music that might have more in common with what you see in, in African villages today in the sense that music was part of daily life. It was seen to be divine wisdom from the muses, which were the goddesses of art and science and, uh, et cetera. It was seen to be a channeling of that wisdom and very important at everyday events and funerals and weddings and all those settings that we talked about, um, and, and played all the time in, in, uh, in Roman times at gladiator fights and the, the many, many feasting holidays at music was always there. And rhythm was very important and dancing was very important. And, um, The early church fathers, and I'm not making this up, uh, you can look at their early writings, condemned that kind of behavior because I think... So
1: sinful, sinful and licentious, it makes people happy.
0: (laughs) Well, I think that there was a need or a desire to sever, uh, to separate paganism from Christianity. So they had their reasons. They felt that if they interrupted that type of, of engaging with music, they might be able to interrupt... The whole religion, the whole pagan belief system, because it was entangled with music and celebration and festivities and all of that. So the early church fathers, for their reasons, said no instruments in church at all. Um, only the human voice that is the only instrument that is is uh pure enough to uh, to uh, communicate with God. you could have a harp at home, <laughs> but a harp, only a harp <laughs> and 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 you know the faithful will abandon they, they even uh, they said trumpets and flutes and all of that are more suited for beasts.
1: So even then key- like early church music was also just like, aggressively slimmed down. I'm thinking of like monastic chanting where well, it was this, you know, stepwise octave, just like- Not even almost, octaves at the beginning. Yeah, just aggressively unison. pure.
0: <laughs> well, it, it has no harmony, it, no harmony and no real rhythm. And it's in unison. It was only sung by men at the beginning. So people find Gregorian chant beautiful and exalted music. And that's fine with me. Shout but out to Hildegard I'm von more,
1: Bingen, who allowed women to participate. Thank you.
0: <laughs> well, it was the official music of the Roman Catholic Church for a thousand years. And uh, that's okay. But to to look at, I'm more interested in what that says about the times and what that said about people's freedom. Of, sure, surely there were... St- still, you know, minstrels and all kinds of musicians. And, and I'm sure people still made music at weddings. I'm not saying there was no music in those early Christian times, but it was deeply frowned upon by by the priests and by the, you know, in church. And if you go to uh, villages in, in Europe, you'll see a church on every corner, you know, so, so the, the church is watching what you do. And um, a lot of behaviors other, that had nothing to do with music. We know that, that the, the church had strong um, opinions about every aspect of life, and uh, you could obey them or not obey them to your, you know. <laughs> but but certainly this turned music into something different than what we see in other parts of the world. And, uh, you know, whether you agree with it or not, that is what happened. And music became a very formal thing to do it was uh, for for the longest period the first uh, music training schools that were not attached to churches did not come a- a- about until the 15 early 1500s in Naples those were the secular the first secular and they were they were um they began in orphanages to to train children and give them a useful s- skill and uh the the orphans were called the conservati meaning the saved they had been saved from destitution by these Uh, centers attached to hospitals that would give orphans skills and house them and that sort of thing. And from the word conservati, the save, we got conservatory, formal music training for state purposes. So there's a lot more to it than that, but just understanding the effects of Christianity, the formal conservatory system, its beginnings, and the separation we make in this, this mainstream Canadian American Western European societies uh between performer and spectator there's a very hard line that you don't see at a, a concert in Brazil where everyone's singing along and wildly dancing and uh bellowing the refrain and no one's kind of annoyed with them oh you're interrupting my my I mean we we have that at rock concerts here too it, but it, it it's a little different there and you 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 have to Go to some other places to see how different it really is, um, and I'm I, certainly there are formal types of music in other parts of the world too. So in India, there's formal classical music. In China, there's there's Chinese opera. These are very formal training with with you know some downsides too in 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 the strictness and that kind of thing. I'm not saying that Western European classical is the only type of music that has those elements, but certainly it's had a big effect. And the entire harmonic system that we see or we hear in pop songs and things like that developed through the church. The church determined which harmonies could be played, how how they would progress. That harmonic system emerged from the church.
1: And that's one of the things that I appreciated um, about your book is that you talked about how Western formal music training can actually take a lot of the joy out of music, a lot of the natural joy. Um, And I noticed this because I have very similar feelings about that. You know, I love to sing um, when I sing in groups. I can really like lose myself in the music and people tell me all sorts of very nice things about the way my voice sounds. But when I listen to my own performances, I can't do it because I criticize myself constantly. Oh no, my sound is too forward. I didn't hit that note. Exactly right until a quarter into the beat. (laughs) Um, You know, there are still one or two horrible performances that can fill me with shame, and it's been 20 years. Um, And so, you wrote in the book how your professional cello training gave you both physical pain in the form of tendonitis and it also robbed you of musical joy. And I was wondering why formal music training has developed this way. Like, is there something? Is that the only way that we can get virtuoso performers? Are there other methods?
0: I'll give you two uh, uh, answers to that question. And one is that it was just so wonderful to look into some of the neuroscience around these questions for me, because I didn't realize how much unfinished business I did have. And I, I was very gratifying to understand things in in a scientific way and also in a historical and personal way. And one thing I'll say is that learning about the pleasure and reward center in the uh, circuitry in the brain that we talked about earlier, dopamine and all those things and how good that is for us on a mood level and that kind of thing was neat, but I mean, not surprising. What was interesting though, was to look at the type of training you're talking about and the type of training I had and to, to see that we also have a circuitry that primes us for fight, flight, or freeze. And when that circuitry is activated in relation to um, criticism and, and harsh situations, it short-circuits the pleasure-reward center, or I should say pleasure-reward circuitry, the pleasure-reward regions. It short-circuits them because we can't be having adrenaline rising in our our brains and bodies and be chilling out at the same time. So if you think about it, if you're learning in that environment, you are going to be deprived of some of the joy and the benefits of music, which is really sad. I'm not going to say I never had joy the whole time I was I, obviously I did. I wouldn't have continued that long, but but not in the way that I wish I could have. So that's the first part of the the answer is that um, there's actually something happening in the brain when you're having the wrong type of training that impedes the benefits of music, some of the benefits of music. The other part of your question was, is there another way? Um, Can we get the benefits of formal training without those negative effects? And I'll say that a lot of um, efforts have been made to improve and change music pedagogy. And um, in the book, I talk about some of the different systems that have been developed, Kodai and um, music for one child, uh, young children is another system. Uh, there are lots of systems and efforts being made and I applaud those efforts. I will say though, I think whether music becomes a joy or not a joy will depend a lot on the family environment and the teacher themselves or them, the, the, the teacher themselves, the relationship teachers have with children and, um, and the expectations of parents, if parents are doing it to make their kids smarter or little robots playing Chopin at the end of, of the year recital, if it's all about that, then the child may not have the experience that nourishes them. Um, if the families are playing together and and it's part of family culture to strum on Friday nights and they're experiencing the, the light on their parents' faces and and it's a shared activity where there's include, there's feeling of togetherness um that same child doing the same lessons might have an entirely different experience um so that's one part of the the answer the other part is that it is documented that when the that adrenaline system and i think the technical word is the periventricular system the one that primes us for fight fight flight or flee free flee when that's activated learning doesn't happen as well either so it doesn't even serve the learning to train children that way. And certainly, um, rote wrote exercises, if if you're not practicing the passage with the right technique, you're going to ingrain the wrong technique. It doesn't matter how many hours a day your child is practicing. So we should be borrowing techniques from athletes who do a lot of visualization in their feats. They, I, I think that the new thinking in sports psychology is that it's not just about jumping the pole, you know, doing the pole vault over and over again. It's about visualizing the right approach and the jump in your mind. So you're, you're exercising the circuitry you need to perform the event. And then it's not doing the same wear and tear on your body. And it, it, it's, it's, it's you can, you could practice, people do, can and do practice music that way too. go through passages in their head, reading the music and imagining their fingers doing the action, and it might do more good. You probably need both. You need the physical action too, but it might do a lot more good than um, than having kids play the same passage. Zoning out with poor technique and a cramped shoulder. <laughs> you know, the kid's going to get an injury, hate it, and perform it. They'll practice playing it wrong too. <laughs> so there, there are lots of ways we could improve how we learn Uh, formal music.
1: Well, Adriana, thank you so much for coming on and sharing everything that you've learned with both your scientific and your musical mind.
0: I really appreciate your interest in the topic because as you can see, it's dear to my heart.
1: If you'd like to learn more about Adriana Barton and her book, Wired for Music, A Search for Health and Joy Through the Science of Sound, we've posted links at scienceforthepeople.ca. If you like the sweet, sweet sounds of this podcast, please do subscribe and maybe leave us a nice comment or Apple podcast review. We'd love to hear from you. If you're interested in supporting the show, we also have a link to our Patreon page where you can support us with a one-time or recurring donation. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount.
0: Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgauer, and me, Rochelle Saunders.